Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode three of the Boldly Go podcast. Today, I have just an incredible guest for you. Her name is Christy McClelland. Christy is a professor and a teacher and what she calls a biblical culturalist. She has dedicated her life to teaching people how to study the Bible. And she does that in the classroom, but also through multiple trips to Israel, where she takes people there and teaches them in the setting of Israel all about how to interpret the Bible. She likes to think of herself as a bridge between Middle Eastern times of biblical age and today's culture. So she's really, really good at helping us understand what exactly was going on at the time and what did certain things mean in the in biblical times. And she is the author of the Bible study called Jesus and Women, which is my favorite Bible study I've ever done. And it is phenomenal. If you haven't done the Jesus and Women Bible study and you want to learn how revolutionary it was, how Jesus treated women back then, definitely pick that up and dig into it. It is so good. She is about to deliver some serious biblical knowledge. So if you're somebody who's really into that, please get a notepad and take notes because it's incredible. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Christy McClelland. Welcome, Christy McClelland, to the podcast. I am so excited to have you here today, and I cannot wait to hear what you have to share with us. Man, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to meet you. I'm excited to share this time together. And so for those of you out there who might not know Christy, I have to tell you, she wrote this amazing Bible study called Jesus and Women, which is hands down the best Bible study I've ever done. If you haven't done it yet, you have to do it. Get a group of women together and do this study because it will change your life. And so Christy, I'm hoping that you're working on another one. Well, you know what? It's interesting. I had written several series before Lifeway picked up Jesus and Women. So we have them available on the New Lens website. So more and more. People that are discovering us through Jesus and Women are moving right on to our online courses. You know, I've been a professor for 16 years teaching Bible in the Biblical Studies Department at Williamson College, and just every bit of that biblical table has been bleeding out into the city and more and more into the nation and around the world. So we have a lot of different biblical tables and series available for you right now. That is so awesome. And I'm telling you, if I lived there, I would be in your class in the front row every single time. I mean, well, I love learning from you. Come on. <laughs> and you encouraged through, I think it was either in your Bible study or in one of the talks you did for people to read Kenneth Bailey's books. Yes. Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. Man, that was an that was a phenomenal life-changing book also. I think one of the great strengths of, of what you teach is helping people to understand the cultural setting of the day so that you can really understand what it meant when Jesus said or did certain things. Talk talk a little bit about how that became a passion for you. Yeah, you know, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, and if I'm going to follow Jesus, it becomes important to know who is he? Who is Jesus? What is he like? What does he think about things? What is it going to mean to follow him? And, you know, you've probably traveled the globe with your work and different things. I've traveled the globe doing missions work and things like that. And being able to enter into different cultures and different languages, you start to understand that Jesus comes from a different world. He comes from a Middle Eastern Semitic Jewish world 2,000 years ago. And being able to enter into that world and historically and culturally, linguistically understand who he is, what he's like, and what it is to follow him, I feel like it's sort of the analogy of TV moving from black and white to color. You mm, know, like we so read about Jesus in the four gospels, but when you go study the Bible in Israel, you're walking the fifth gospel, which is the land, the land itself. And you're eating food that Jesus ate and you're seeing stars in the sky that he saw and knows you're sleeping wow. in is where he slept and you're walking on roads that he walked and you're entering into his world. We're always talking about, you know, get in the other guy's shoes, right? When you want to understand somebody else, walk a mile in their shoes And studying the Bible in Israel allowed me to walk a mile in Jesus's shoes and getting to know him and his world has just absolutely been so transformational for me. For the last 14 years, I've been taking teams on two week biblical study trips to Israel because I believe that there's four gospels in the Bible that we read, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. But there's a fifth gospel that we walk and it's the land of Israel. It's the Mm -hmm. space where when God took on flesh and came down to the ground, he came down there. Born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, a rabbi of the Galilee, 
died for the sins of the world and raised again in Jerusalem. You know, Israel is the story of the Bible and of Jesus. And so it's been life changing to get to know him on his terms in Mm. the world and to walk with him in those ways. And so when was the first time you personally went to Israel? 2007. I was already teaching Bible in the biblical studies department at Williamson College and a study abroad opportunity opened up. And I actually had the chance to go study the Bible in Egypt and Israel. So entering into that Islamic Jewish world, Ramadan and Passover, you know, all of that Arabic, Hebrew, but an honor, shame culture, a communal world where everything's measured in the we We're so individualistic in the West we're just from a different world. And so that's why when I came back from that, I really felt like my calling, the way that I best serve the Western church is to be a bridge, to be a bridge mm. in Western Christians in the world and the lands of the Bible. And so talk a little bit, of, if you would, explain the honor shame culture versus what you know how we operate here in the Western world. Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, when we think of the word justice here in the West, we have a national symbol for justice. It's lady justice. It's a lady. She's blindfolded. She's holding scales in one hand and a sword in the other. Mm. And usually here in the West, when we speak of justice, for us, that's a horizontal issue of equality. That's why Lady Justice is wearing scales. We're trying to make things equal. Well, in the Middle East, they're a vertical culture. They are not a horizontal culture. They do not speak in terms of what is right and wrong. They speak in terms of what is honorable and what is shameful. Wow. You've ever heard of honor killings? Yes. Oh, yes. Primarily when a female does something to bring dishonor not only on herself, but her family. In mm-hmm. that worldview and economy, it's better to kill her to reinstate the honor and to cover the shame. Wow. So they're very much a vertical culture where we're horizontal. And so biblical justice, when we talk about the justice of Isaiah, the prophet of Jeremiah, the prophet of the ancients of old in the Bible, they are talking about something more than equality. They are talking about justice in terms of when the honorable reaches down to the shameful, lifts them out of their shame and restores their honor. So biblical justice is almost always restorative. It's not punitive. When the Mm. God wants to bring justice, he's not going to burn stuff to the ground. He's going to refine things and make them pure. Wow, that's so great. Fire in God's hands, you know, fire in our hands is humanity. We burn stuff up, right? But fire in the living God's hands, he burns things out. He like impurities. Things out of you that you wish you could burn out of yourself if you had the strength mm. to do it. And so we want God's justice. We want that refining fire like silver purified seven times as Jeremiah talks about in the Old Testament. And so as Christians, we are being invited to be part of the agency of God's justice in the earth, lifting people out of shame, restoring their sense of Imago Dei and honor, sending them forward in shalom and wholeness, flourishing and delight. And this is it. This is quintessential to what it means to know Jesus and to walk with him and to make him known to others. And so how would this sense of, of honor, shame, this vertical sense of justice, how would that have affected the early church, like in Acts and so on, versus the church now in the Western world and the difference there? Yes. You know, Acts 2 and Acts 4 are great examples. When the Bible talks about that they held everything in common, there was no one among them with need. They really live in a world where everything is in the we. It's never just, am I okay? It's, is the community okay? It's, are we okay? And honor and shame is communal. It's not just individual. So if you and I share community and you're not okay, then I cannot be okay until you are okay. Right. This is the biblical world. And here in the West, we're very individualistic. So we tend to live, if I'm okay and my family's okay, it's all good. Right. That is not what the early church would have understood. So it's the difference in following Caesar and following Jesus. It's the difference in part of empire and being part of kingdom. 
And empire is all about acquisition. More, more, more. You can never have enough, but it's anchored in scarcity. It's anchored in this fear of not having enough. The kingdom is anchored in relinquishment. Jesus comes on the scene and he's talking about the last will be first. If you want to gain your life, you got to lose it. Lay down your life so that you might pick it up. So the kingdom economy is very different from the empire's economy. So where do you think that fear of scarcity comes from in the West when we well, have so much? Well, I, think, I think it's in the world. I mean, I think mm-hmm. the system outside of Eden since Genesis 3 has been scarcity. There's always well, this sense that there's not going to be enough and you've got to be strong enough to get yours. Then you've got to be strong enough to keep yours. You've got to be strong enough to keep others from coming and getting it, coming and overtaking it, coming and being better than you, faster than you, stronger than you, having a better business plan than you, a better model than you, where the kingdom of God just understood that they were eternally, infinitely funded. I don't have to fight you. I don't have to take anything from you. I don't need what is yours. I'm not an orphan. I have a high and holy father who's funding my whole life and Mm. I can live in the overflow and in the shalom of that. So that would probably explain why the early church was so countercultural and why it had Mm -hmm. such an impact because it was living contrary to that that scarcity mindset of you know, trying to get more and more. And so yeah. I I could definitely see where there's a disconnect between the early church and the current Western church and how we are not necessarily taking care of the community as well yeah. as we could be, as Absolutely. well as we should be. Yeah. I think it was Timothy Keller. I'm going off the top of my head right now, but I think I'm correct on this. He talked about that for the first century, for the early church, they're living in a world where the Romans gave their bodies to everyone and money to no one. And the church came along and gave their bodies to no one and their money to everyone. Yeah, that's the opposite. (laughs) And it's the opposite. And you really see that. You see that in the book of Acts. I mean, there's just, there's a beautiful upside down kingdom that was at play among empire. And yeah. we can find our own versions of it today in America, in the Western church and in the world. But, you know, to be a kingdom of God, people, generosity is huge. Generosity is one of the highest virtues in an honor, shame world. Um, Zedekah is the Hebrew word. It's where we get the word righteousness, but it also carries the meaning of generosity to have a good eye, to be a generous person that is honorable in the biblical world, that's still honorable to this day in the Middle East. And I think that really speaks a word to us as the Western church that we keep trying to wonder, am I right or am I wrong? I love to ask the question, am I the most generous thing in the room? Oh, goodness. Okay, that's heavy. Mm. I am. I I can live with the outcome of that. I can stand before God one day and if he looks at me and says, you know what, Christy, you were just too wide with your hedgerows. You just were a little bit too loose on things. I'm going to say, you know what? I can live with that. <laughs> wow. Just tell me I was the most generous thing in the room. So how does generosity, how do we translate that into our current lives? You know, what are some practical ways that people can, I mean, I know it sounds so basic, just be generous, yeah. but I think people have a hard time with that again, because of that scarcity mindset. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I I think that, you know, potentially a strong faith, if you are working on, you know, getting to know Jesus more and more every day, it should ne- therefore naturally make you more generous because you become less concerned That's right. with the things of this world. That's right. But I don't necessarily see that happening in church community. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll just answer this personally for me and everybody's situation is different. I'm single. I don't have children, so I'm not funding kids through college. I have a dog. I do love him. His name is Chester, but you know, he just doesn't cost that much. I think Chester needs his own Instagram account, just FYI. Chester would love his own Instagram. Let me tell you. (laughs) Because we see him on it too much. That would be the problem. Um, He'd be (laughs) an oversharer for sure. He's an extrovert. He's a two on the Enneagram, all those (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, I'll just, I'm going to honestly answer that question. I really think for us as Christians who live in America and by America, I mean a first world economy in a free democratic society. I really think there's this beautiful gospel invitation for us to answer the question, how much is enough? Mm. That's a question I'm honestly asking myself. Um, I'm in my forties. 
And I'm sort of just looking at life and saying, Christy, how much is enough for you? How much is enough to take care of your responsibilities and, you know, take care of your household? And then how can you be generous with the rest? And that's a really different question. And as I have that conversation with my community here, I live in Franklin, Tennessee, which is part of Williamson County. We're the 13th wealthiest county in the nation. No kidding. A lot of money here. There's a lot of Mm -hmm. music stars here. More and more movie stars are moving here. There's a lot of Christian contemporary uh, artists that live here. There's just a lot of money here where I live. And so, you know, being able to have some of these generosity conversations in a county like this one and in a city like this one just south of Nashville. It's been very life-giving for me. And this is all I know to tell you. I have never regretted being generous. I've regretted Mm -hmm. a lot of things in my life, but being generous is not one of them. I've never had the thought, you know what? I gave too much away right there. All right. And I really think that like the more we give our lives away, I think Jesus means it when he says the father will give it back to you in manifold fashion. So You know, we're having a lot of conversations right now. And I think as Western Christians, if we could just lead out with not trying to always be right, but if we could lead out with let's be the most generous presence in the conversation. And if we are the generous salt that salts the culture of America, then I think some really beautiful things are going to start flowing out of that. I think I've heard people talk about too how when they've they the thought has occurred to them to be generous to a specific person or a people group or whatever but then well I mean they wouldn't be in this position if they hadn't done x y and z or you know maybe if they worked a little harder they would be able to get out of there but I it, it's an interesting thing where we start to justify reasons why we don't necessarily have to be generous and and talk ourselves out of that and I always wonder is that our own is that our own negative self-talk or is that the enemy? What is that? What do you think? Uh, Man, you may not like this answer, but when I hear that, you know, when I get into that conversation and somebody's Mm -hmm. like, well, you know, I kind of wanted, you know, my question is, well, if you were wanting to be generous, where did you reallocate those monies and where did you get it? Nice. Often the answer is nowhere. Right. And then I'm like, now, now we know what we're dealing with here. Because that's right. somebody that truly seeks to be generous isn't generous. That's right. And there's so many ways you can be generous that don't involve money also, because even if you don't have money, you can give your time. You can help kids learn to read before they get into third grade so that they don't end up in prison. I mean, there's so many things you can do. That's exactly right. Generosity in a manifold fashion in every sense. And so I just think for me, like, fiduciary responsibility is a good thing for people that are like, man, if I'm going to give, I want to feel like I'm giving to solid, reputable ministries, organizations, nonprofits, communities, churches, whatever. Do your due diligence, but give. Yeah. Don't let the analysis lead you into paralysis. That's exactly right. (laughs) No, that's great. So being generous with money, but also with your time also leads into being generous with your gifts. You know, all of us have been gifted in certain ways, uh, but I think that for women, especially, I think there is a fear of sharing those gifts, whether it's imposter syndrome or who am I to think that I could do this or that, you know, certainly something I've suffered from in my lifetime or just general, you know, that's not something that women should do. There's no place for you here, that kind of thing, whether it's in the church or in the community. You know, talk a little bit if you could, because, you know, that Jesus and Women Bible study just opened my eyes so much to how Jesus lifted up and established the woman's place as a disciple. You know, talk a little bit about what Jesus would say to a woman who is feeling too afraid to let her gifts shine. Yeah. I mean, if you go back before Jesus, so a few things to understand about Jesus in his world. As historically in Judaism, women have had a very good place. The very first woman in the Bible, her name is Eve. It's from Hebrew, Hava. And Hava means life. She literally carries life. She brings life. What is woman when she shows up in the earth? She's a life bringer. She's a life giver. Mm, she brings beautiful. life. 
And in Judaism, there's all of these Jewish feasts and festivals and celebrations. There's Sabbath or Shabbat, as they call it, every seventh day, sundown Friday night to sundown Saturday night. And interestingly enough, in a patriarchal world, there's only one member of the family that's allowed to light the Shabbat candles, and it's the mother. It's the matriarch. It's the mater. And when the rabbis were asked, why is this? Why is it the mother that gets to or holds the honor of lighting the Shabbat candles? They said it's because woman brings light and warmth into the home and into the world. Wow. That's so good. That's so good. Well, and I raise that as you ask about Jesus, because this gives us some insight into him. This means that Jesus grew up 2000 years ago with his mother, Mary, lighting the Sabbath candles on Friday nights to welcome the Sabbath into their home, which is Mm. like a practicing of heaven, of the kingdom of God fully realized. And so Jesus is growing up in a world where woman has honor and yet in a greater world where woman's been anchored in shame. And you really see through the outworking of his ministry in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that he disagrees with the world system and how it had relegated women to the side to the margins, had anchored her in shame. And he comes on the scene 2,000 years ago, and he starts practicing that biblical justice. He who is an honorable rabbi of Israel reaches down to women in their shame and lifts them up out of their shame, restoring their honor and sending them forward into shalom. And the invitation in that is for women to show up, for us to hold our own space in every corner of the earth where we are put in our families, in our vocations, in our neighborhoods, among our communities, in our churches, with our friends. And we're meant to hold our space because when woman shows up, light and warmth enter the world. And this is a really beautiful thing. And so, you know, when I talk to women, I ask the question this way, which is how is light and warmth entering the world through you? How is that showing up in the places where you're holding your space? How are you agreeing with Jesus to be one so honorable you get to light the Sabbath candles? You know, women make up more than half of the church. We know this, you know, when you look at percentages of church attendance and things like that, both around the world and in America. So how are we showing up and really participating in the fullness of the kingdom of God life? in our spaces and just sort of like wearing that mantle that I really right. think that Jesus says has been upon us since the garden of Eden and since the days of Eve. That is so beautiful. Then it, it, it naturally then leads to the next question, which is then how do we reconcile all of that with what Paul said about women shouldn't speak at church? How does that, yeah. how does that go together? Man, great question. So What I'll often say is Paul comes on the scene and grabs Jesus's vision and carries it further. He carries it into the age of the church. And so we really only have two verses by Paul in the entire New Testament that seem to be prohibitive of women when it comes to the local assembly and church. But he says much more in scripture about what women can and were doing in the early church. When you read Romans 16, he mentions more women than men. And he talks about them as sisters in the Lord who co-laboured alongside of him. That's right. So you've got Phoebe carrying the letter to Rome. We know in that world, historically and culturally, the one that brings the letter is the one that stands up in the assembly, teaches, explains it. So envisioning Phoebe teaching, you've got Priscilla and Aquila being mentioned. There's a house church meeting in their home. They are discipling a young man named Apollos. Why we assume that's a private one-on-one discipleship. The text doesn't say that. Um, Probably them preaching and teaching him in the local church. You've got Andronicus and Junia. Junia is a feminine name. They're called exceptional among the apostles. So Mm. just in Romans 16, you've got Phoebe carrying the letter to Rome. You've got Priscilla and Aquila hosting and co-ministering at a house church in their home. And you've got Junia, who's an apostle. So we've got that in the text. And so then when we come to 1 Corinthians 14, that's the passage that you mentioned about women being silent in church. What's so interesting about that to me, why we've chosen these two verses 
is in 1 Corinthians 11, which is the same book of the Bible written to the same people in the same city of Corinth. Paul literally says when women pray and prophesy in the local assembly, let them do it with their heads covered. Right. So how is a woman being silent if she's praying and prophesying in church? This is true. That's true. And what I think is interesting is why do we hone in on 1 Corinthians 14 and not 1 Corinthians 11? Right, right. 1 Corinthians 14 also ends the very last verse of that chapter. He says, brothers and sisters, Mm -hmm. be eager to prophesy. That's right. And this is happening in a world where prophecy is held with higher authority and weight than teaching. So we're trying to figure out if women can teach in the local assembly and they are prophesying in the local assembly in the first century. We know this explicitly from the biblical text from Paul. And so when you start to look at the sum total of all of it, we can certainly take some room for first Timothy two, which is that one's interesting as well, because Paul gives seven imperatives and we somehow ignore the others. And we've held on to that one about women teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, aren't lifting their hands in prayer. Women are wearing gold, silver, precious stones and having expensive hairstyles, meaning if somebody else does your hair, that's an expensive right. style. So I just think it's interesting, you know, again, why we've taken that one verse, because I'm assuming you own some gold, maybe some silver, somebody else does your hair, somebody else. Only, when, only on special occasions, you know, because <laughs> I can't do it very well myself. Yes. yes. <laughs> And so it it is just interesting and, and it really is true that we have picked and we we have picked and chosen some passages and have negated others that clearly demonstrate a strong presence of the feminine in the early mm-hmm. church and what they were doing. It's so amazing to me because, you know, in today's in the work world, women and men will look at a at a job opening, okay, lists all the job requirements if you want to apply for the job. And men will look at that and go, oh, I got, I got about 60% of those qualifications. I'll go ahead and apply. But studies show that women will look at that. And if they don't have at least 90% of the qualifications, they will not apply. And so that, that just interesting lack of confidence in our abilities versus how men look at, at potential opportunities is something that I definitely see happening in the church. Even though we make up over half of the church, I don't see that over half of the church stepping forward and prophesying and teaching and, and leaning into their spiritual gifts and all of those things. So, you know, how do we take, how do we take the lessons that Jesus taught and help us get out of those shells, you know, and lean into our spiritual gifts and, and be everything that God intended us to be? Yeah. Well, and again, I will get to Jesus, but I would go back even earlier in the story. You know, if you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, what's so beautiful about it to me is the Bible explicitly uses the language that Adam and Eve together co-ruled over the Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. Co-rulership, co-emissaries, co-stewards under the living God, who's like a king with a garden, which you get all this ancient imagery imagery of kings and gardens. And if you ask me, I would humbly say, and I think this applies to the business world and the church, the beauty of the living God and fullness is shown when men and women co-rule together. Oh, I love that. The co-stewardship. So you show me men who value women, who understand that they are supposed to be at the table with them, flourishing, wholeness, delight, ideas being flown around, innovation together, creativity together, the unity in the diversity. Women and women and men are clearly different, but in some ways we are, we share the human race. So when there can be that unity and diversity, when male and female together, without one trying to rule over the other, not men trying to rule over women, not women trying to rule over men, when both can be anchored in the buoyancy and the flourishing of the kingdom or in honoring that unity and diversity, that's a powerful thing that the world cannot contend against. Right. so what I would say is to men with that percentage of the 60%, the 90% is I have men in my life that literally contend for me. They're looking for how to get me at seats at tables. 
that they just know in the feminine, maybe I can't get to. And in the same way, these are men that I co-labor alongside that same language that Paul uses of these women in Romans 16. And I remember when I was studying in Israel, I asked a rabbi, Rabbi, what does it mean in Genesis 2 when it says that it was not good for Adam to be alone in the garden? Right. Make a helper suitable for him. And, you know, here in the West, we say, well, he was lonely. He needed a partner. If you're going to procreate, you kind of have to have a girl. Like that's the birds and the bees. That's the way the whole system works. Yeah. And I will just never forget it. The rabbi looked back at me and he said there was an enemy in the garden and it would always take male and female together to contend against the enemy and for the way of the Lord. Oh, wow. Never forgotten it. And so for me... Like I love men, you know, in my history, I had a very good father. He passed away when I was 21. Mm. I'm not one of those women that has a lot of stories about men mistreating me. That's just not in my story. Um, I have a ton of guy friends. I play golf with them. I read books with them. I talk with them. I love men. They carry a part of the Imago Dei that I don't carry as a woman. And I love working with them and I love co-laboring with them and I love learning from them because they see the world in such a weird way compared to how I process the world. And when they meet me in that and they're like, man, Christy, you see the world so differently than me, but there's room (laughs) room for that unity and the diversity. I think that rabbi is on to something. If you want to see the church fully active and alive in the earth, show me men and women co-laboring together. If you want to show me companies in the earth, secular, we might call it. I'm not really sure there's a difference in secular and sacred. I think uh, there's <laughs> the divine in all things. But you know, show me companies, show me businesses, show me startups, show me nonprofits where men and women are contending together toward a common goal, the tekum olans, the Hebrew phrase for the repair of the world. I really think the enemy struggles to contend against that. Woman and man together, not just in marriage, not, I'm not just talking marriage. Right. I mean, you get women and men together contending together, unified in their diversity. The Mm -hmm. enemy can't deal with that. Gosh, I love that. I feel like I'm getting a degree in theology today. Like this is so cool. Your wealth of knowledge is awesome. Well, I just feel like as women, you know, we, we have a particular voice to say these things right now. You know, I mean, in the same way that we would say patriarchy is wrong, so is feminism. You know, mm-hmm. we're looking for something in between where we, we believe that God's kingdom is big enough that everybody in it can flourish. I don't oh, need who I don't need. I don't need any man to be lowered for me to be elevated. We all can be fully us, fully alive, fully awake, bringing our full selves to every moment. And the Takum Alam will happen, the repair of the world, the restoration and the renewal of all things. It is happening. And we're being invited into it. And we're not alone in it. We are following Jesus in that mandate. Well, it's very evident that you have a ton of hope for humanity and for the future of the church. You know, where does your hope come from? Is it just your personality? I mean, obviously, a lot of it has to do with your faith. But have you been a Christian your whole life? Like, where does this, where does this confident hope arise from? Man, that's a great question. I, I became a believer, a follower of Jesus when I was nine years old living in wow. Mississippi. So I have walked with him for a very long time. But, you know, when you say, where is my hope? My hope is in the person of Jesus. I believe that we are going to fool around and make it because of who he is. Not, yeah, not because of who we are. We are. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> You Thank know, goodness. when I read Revelation 21, when Jesus says, behold, I am making all things new, that is a right now work. You and I are sitting here meeting each other, you know, via, you know, computer screens today. But Jesus in manifold ways is making all things new today. And I trust him and I believe in him to finish that. You know, the kingdom fully realized is on its way. And my hopefulness is in Helm. My buoyancy is in Helm. My fullness, my flourishing, my shalom, my wholeness, and my delight, it's in Helm. And as He funds my life, I can continue to give it away because He's just going to give it back to me in manifold fashion. And I don't have to fight for anything. I can try to be the most generous thing in the room 
which is a core value for me because I believe I'm not an orphan and I am not going to go bankrupt because he is risen from the dead and he now sits at the right hand of his father on a throne, a throne of justice and righteousness, Psalm 89 says. And right now he's bringing the repair of the world and I'm invited to fight against that or to be a part of it. And I choose to be a part of it. I want the whole of my life to bring the restoration and the renewal of all things in his name. Wow. Preach it. That is awesome. (laughs) That is just so good. I mean, I feel like that's a mic drop moment right there, what you just said. And I, I, I hope that we can get this message out to so many people who need to hear it because all I can ever say is my life is better with Jesus. Yes. And every time that I turn to him and I rely on him, everything gets right-sized. Everything gets put into its perfect proportion. And that, for me, helps me see things more clearly and respond to the world around me rather than react emotionally. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. Yes. And so a part of one, one of the things that you talked about was how in, in uh, Jesus and Women, how refusing hospitality was like a tremendous insult. How can we get better at hospitality? Because to me, I feel like that's something that is sort of missing. You know, I think that we meet people at restaurants, we go say, hey, let's go get a cup of coffee, you know, that kind of thing. But what is hospitality and how do we show it and how do we use that to be generous? And so how does hospitality tie in to, you know, that the way the early church operated and how we should potentially be operating in our community? Yeah. I mean, and hospitality is another virtue of that honor shame world. It's one of the highest virtues. You think of the way Abraham all the way back in Genesis He welcomes the three visitors. We know they're angels, but Abraham doesn't know that. He thinks he's just welcoming three dudes that he doesn't know. And when you see the lavishness of the hospitality, the, the spirit of hospitality is welcome. When we practice hospitality, we're welcoming each other. We're embracing each other. We're accepting each other. And table fellowship, there's an intimacy in who you eat with. If you think about it, if you've ever been mad at somebody, it is difficult to share a meal with them. It's Boy, you're right. Sit there with a person and eat with a person that you are not at peace with. Think about the peace treaties throughout human history that were signed at tables where Mm. people came together for a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. There's something about the table. There's something about eating together where there's this invitation for us to welcome each other and embrace each other and accept each other. And we're living in such polarizing times now, politically, culturally, financially in the United States that I really think as followers of Jesus, hospitality is a huge ministry for us to really lean into whatever it looks like. Even if it is meeting at a restaurant, it's extending that invitation or having people in your home. And I think that what's so beautiful and important is we've got to get back to the days of being able to sit and interact with people that we disagree with and do it in a way that is peaceful and harmonious where there's an, uh, there's an open curiosity. I really want to hear your perspective. I may disagree with it, but I want to care about you. I want you to feel welcomed, embraced and accepted in my presence, because I believe that in the presence of Jesus, you would feel welcome, embraced and accepted. And, uh, you know, if you think about it, I love talking about this. I can't cook worth anything. I don't know if you can cook. I can't cook. (laughs) I have friends that are really good cooks. can cook, but I don't always cook. How's that? <laughs> there you go. Honesty today. I would say this. I think every time we eat together, we are practicing for the wedding supper of the lamb. Oh, wow. Heaven is portrayed as a banquet in the Bible. Like we're headed to a banquet. We are headed to this banquet in God's honor where we are going to eat and celebrate the kingdom of God fully realized, that repair, that renewal, that restoration of all things. And if heaven is portrayed as a banquet, then the things that we eat together here, it's sort of like practicing for that. It's why for the Jewish people, Shabbat on Friday nights at sundown, it begins with a meal. It begins with ceasing work and eating together, remembering and celebrating that God is making all things new. So I think that the more we can reach for one another through hospitality, 
whether that's meeting at a restaurant for lunch, having a group of people into your home for games, for dinner, to sit around your fire pit, have a bottle of wine and eat cheese and things like that. I, I think that there is shalom in that. You know, if COVID's shown us anything, it's that we're lonely. As yes. a culture, we are lonely. We are isolated. Um, the isolation of COVID, even if you're an introvert, introverts, extroverts, wherever you are on the Enneagram, all of those assessments, we've really seen that we need each other. We need human interaction. We need to be touched. We need to be seen. We need to be spoken to. And I think about how all of those things happen around the table. Mm-hmm. There's That's sharing true. ideas. There's touching each other. There's sharing common food. There's enjoying that pleasure of good food and life together. And I think that there's just a common grace that exists at the table. And the more that we can practice that, again, the more that we could be the most generous people in the room. And hospitality is certainly a tributary of that Zedekah. I think the watching world is get an idea of who God is, what he's like, what it is to walk with him when they get to eat with his people. I am headed to tomorrow to a brunch that my girlfriends are holding for me for my birthday. And all of us can't stop talking about how excited we are to hug each other. Yes. Yes. I mean, just to be able to hug each other and just sit and talk in person rather than on video or over the phone or over text. I, I mean, it's, it's, and, and the, the few people I have been able to hug since I've been vaccinated and they're vaccinated, like we hang on for a while, you yeah. know, like the hugs are longer, you know, exactly because right. we've all been denied. That's exactly So right. I think it's going to be interesting to see how people appreciate those things that, that they've been denied for the past year. I mean, I went to Starbucks after I got my second shot and it was like the greatest coffee experience of my entire life. You know, and then I went to church in person on Easter Sunday. I hadn't been to church for a year. And I saw my pastor, Pastor Drew, and gave me gave him a hug. And I said, Pastor Drew, church hasn't even started yet. And this is already literally the greatest church service I've ever been to. Yes. And so yeah. to be able to appreciate those things because they were taken is is actually a gift. Yes, that's exactly it, Even right. though it's been super hard and I would not want to go through the past year again for any amount of yeah. money, but but yeah. to be able to recognize and appreciate those little things we've all taken so much for granted is definitely a gift. And I hope that we all can can look at it as a gift because those little things are they they have meaning. They're important. Yeah. Well, it's back to you saying, you know, how do we encourage women to use their gifts and show up? We've got to remember we are the gift. We don't show up with the gift. We are the gift. Oh, I love that. So as you get together with your friends tomorrow, you're inheriting them. They are inheriting you through this celebration of your birthday. That's why the hugs, that's why the hands on the shoulders, that's why Mm -hmm. the laughs, the stories, the catching up, the gifts aren't in the things. The greatest gift you and I have to give the world is ourselves. It's the person of Jesus inside of us showing up everywhere we go. Oh, I love that because when we, you know, I, I, I think about that all the time. You know, if I die tomorrow, you know, I won't be laying there on my deathbed thinking about, oh, thank goodness, you know, I closed that last deal yesterday for the company. You know, that's while that has its importance in, in creating livelihoods for all of our employees, it's not. It's not what my family is going to remember about me. It's not what my friends are going to remember about me. It's not the mark I'm going to leave on this world, I hope. That's right. You know, I hope that I can encourage others. It's not a proud statement to say that. I think sometimes we've taken humility to mean something that it's not. To say we are the gift, that's not a pride statement. It's actually a humility statement because what we're saying is, man, I am a citizen of a kingdom. And I am the daughter of a father. And where I go, he goes. And where I go, this kingdom goes. And these are the things that when you taste it, it is lahaim to you. It will be life to your soul. So it's not that we're saying, I'm all that. I'm this big gift, you know, showing up. Aren't you so grateful that I'm here today? No, (laughs) there is something of infinite worth and eternal longevity living inside of me. And when you're around me, you taste that. And that's the gift. 
And so as as we shrink away from nothing, we enter into everything and we bring the buoyancy and the fullness of who God is and of the kingdom ethic and the kingdom way with us. And that is the gift less than anything we'll do less than any spiritual gift. It is the presence of the saints salting the earth. That's Mm. participate in the renewal and the restoration of all things. Wow, Christy, that is so good. I, can, I I'm gonna have to listen to my own podcast like several <laughs> more times to like glean all the wisdom that you just dropped on us. What is next for you, Christy? Like, what what is on the horizon? What are you looking forward to doing? You know, I would say just pray for me. It's been 19 months since I was in Israel, so I kind of feel like I've been living in exile. Jerusalem mm. like home to me. I live here in the U.S., so it's definitely I've been trying to practice just daily faithfulness in exile here. Mm -hmm. So I'm just praying that I can get back to Israel with the teams this fall. I'm writing my next study for Lifeway. Yay! Book of Acts, actually. You talk a lot about the the biblical historical story of the early church and how they turned the empire upside down with the way of the kingdom. So a lot of what we've been talking about today with the generosity and the restoration of all things, that's all going to be in it. And really, I'm just open You know, I'm just trying to wake up every day and say, Lord, guide my life. I'm just going to lift my sails today in your wind. Just catch it and carry me wherever you want me to go. And I'm starting to do a lot more national speaking and teaching Mm -hmm. because I can't go to Israel right now. So I'm trying to just really live my life open handed and just to be available for any communities, churches, organizations that have an interest in connecting and learning more about the Bible with the Middle Eastern lens or different things like that. But you could definitely be praying for me to get back to Israel soon. I really miss her. Mm. I really miss Jerusalem. You know, Yerushalayim, the city where God's name dwells. I miss being Uh. So I'm hoping to be back, Lord, please, this October. So, well, I will definitely be praying for you to get back to Israel as fast as you can and for you to take me with you on one of your trips because I am ready to sign up. And I will totally be pre ordering your next study whenever that link is made available. One question I ask everybody is what is something bold, something risky that you've done in the past year or so that you would say, wow, that was a risky move, even for me, but I did it anyway, even though I was afraid? Man, you say just in the last year. It could be it could be longer, but something well, that comes I'll, to mind. I'll, I'll try to put it within the time frame of where we are, because I bet a lot of people have felt this. You know, your company, I'm not sure if y'all would have felt it, but when COVID hit and it was like, Oh god, wait a minute. Okay, this isn't just gonna be here for two weeks. This is gonna be here for a while. I think there was just that that threat inside of me that wants security that was like, Christy, just go you know, get a job, like, you know, make sure you're taken care of and all of this kind of stuff. Cause you can't go to Israel right now and right. all of this. And I think what it was is it was a reckoning for me of all of this stuff that I preached to other people about the sufficiency that happens when you're in the kingdom. It was like, do you really believe it? Ooh. And I've really been answering that this year. And, you know, I've been freed up to do things just like this, where, Rather than striving and straining to try to go make sure all the ends are going to meet and all of that, it's just really like, okay, God, I'm just going to take this adventure with you, this COVID adventure that's found us all. None of us asked for this. We're all trying to get a refund on 2020, like the whole year, that's right. the whole thing back. But I think it would just be that there's an impulse in us as human beings when things start not going our way to try to scramble, to fix it, to glue it. To, to shape to control it, it, to control it. And I think if, if there could be a grace to just breathe in those moments and trust, we will actually find that there's an open country, even in the far country, even if we feel like life is not at all what I thought it was going to be like, but this too can be spacious and open. I can breathe. I can get oriented into the mysteries. I don't have to understand them all. And so I would say this past year, it's been staying free to do things just like what I'm doing with you right now. That's awesome. That is so great. So where where can people find you? Because I know after listening to this, they're all going to want to know more about you and your teachings and all the content that you're putting out. And I, guys, I can't, ladies, I cannot encourage you enough to go pick up Jesus and Women 
As I said earlier, it is hands down the best Bible study I've ever done. But where can they find you online and on social media? Uh, man, thank you. So on social media, Instagram, I'm at Christy McClellan. Twitter, it's McClellan Christy. I don't know why we did it that way. That was a long time ago. Our website is newlensbiblicalstudies.com. My specialty is teaching the Bible with a new lens. I'm the middle Clearly. Of the lens. <laughs> and all of our online courses are there. People can subscribe for free and they'll start receiving devotions and teachings that I do and information about upcoming biblical study trips to Israel, Turkey, and Greece, Italy. So people can definitely stay in touch with us, keep learning the Bible through the Middle Eastern lens and join in, join in for that restoration of all things. Wonderful. Christy, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you coming on here and talking about all the the biblical things that we've discussed and hospitality and generosity. And I think, I hope that the listener will walk away with a new you know, a refreshed idea of what it means to be generous and hospitable in today's day and age in their lives and in the church. So thank you so much. Thank you for your study, Jesus and Women. It definitely changed my life. And uh, I cannot wait to get your next study. Man, thank you. You are so welcome. Thank you for having me on today. My pleasure. Thanks, Christy. Bye-bye. Okay. So was it just me? Did anybody else get blown away by that? I mean, she dropped some serious biblical knowledge. So fascinating to learn from Christy about the difference between our view of justice being a horizontal issue of equality versus the Middle Eastern view of justice being a vertical culture of the difference between honorable versus shameful. Just just so incredible to understand that difference. And what she said about generosity really challenged me to think about how much is enough for me? How much is enough for you? And if I'm okay, but my community is not okay, Am I going to do something about it or am I just going to wrap myself in the safety that I've created? I also loved what she talked about. Men and women should co-labor together and be unified in their diversity. Men and women should not be seeking to be elevated above one another, but instead they should walk together. And that's a beautiful goal to work towards. And in my life, I have definitely come to believe that in the goodness of all people, men and women, I think that there's tremendous opportunities in our lives to walk in unity with each other instead of combating for one to be above the other. And I also love that she talked about hospitality is, is a ministry. COVID's definitely shown us that we're lonely and we need each other. We need to be seen and touched. Lord knows since I've been vaccinated, all I, can, all I really want to do is hug people because <laughs> I've been missing that. And we also need to sit and interact with people we might disagree with and share perspectives with each other at the table. Uh, This is something that I would love to see all of us do. Reach out and connect with people who are different from you and share a meal together. Seek to understand. Seek to create those bridges. And Christy is such a great example of that bridge. And so I'm really, really, really thankful that she came on my podcast. And yes, I went back and listened to it two more times before I actually released it publicly because I just wanted to sit and absorb everything that she said. If this podcast has blessed you, please share it. Please share it on social media. Please share it with a friend who might want to hear this message. And please reach out and connect with Christy on social media at Christy McClellan. She's everywhere. And definitely pick up her Bible study, Jesus and Women. It is so, so good. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. And this is Missy signing off. Missy signing off.